If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Whatever form of the revelation of God's Word you have in copy, we are in the second chapter of the book of Romans. An anthology of truth written by one of God's choice servants, again, we may say, and we are making our pilgrim's progress through the book of Romans as well as Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, and the book of Romans lays out for us what the gospel is proper. Don't want to spend a long time saying that you should know it properly, because people don't. Our theme verse is Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Because in the gospel, the true nature of God's righteousness is revealed fully, savingly, and damningly, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When the Apostle Paul uttered those words, he was creating a dividing line between the assumption of mankind thinking that he is good enough to get right with God by his own works. And the gospel is powerful enough to break through that delusion. The Apostle Paul himself was a perfect specimen of that. He embodies both works religion and the gospel of grace, internally and experientially, and at the highest echelons of religious experience. I think no one besides him in the New Testament is qualified to correct men and women around the gospel as much as Paul is besides Christ. So I give him great honor. I've told you that before. For me, Paul is a major patron saint. He is a plumb line for determining whether or not you and I are apostolically uh, accurate or not. And the book of Romans will help you solve that problem. Now, the apostle's argument, I've told you, he's in an argument, is he not? The apostle is in an argument, if you don't know that. The book of Romans is an argument for God's righteousness. This man is standing up and arguing for the only righteousness that can take us out of hell and put us in glory. He's arguing for a righteousness that has been revealed from the beginning of time was summed up in the person of Christ at the cross and has now been manifesting itself in terms of its objective, its evangelical objective of saving men and women since the outpouring of the third person, of which Paul himself is a victim of the power of God. He has not only narrowed the argument from the universal corruption of mankind and their reprobation because of their rejection of God, As we read in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 28, a universal, a universal corruption of humanity because they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, because they would not retain a knowledge of God in their mind, because they refused the glory of God in Christ. God gave them up, parodidomai. He gave them over to another authority. He didn't just let them go. He gave them over to the other authority, the satanic authority. Because either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping Satan. There's no in-between. I'm sorry. There's no in-between. 
I know a lot of people want to make a big in-between. That's the broad road. The narrow road is that there's only two ways. And only one way that saves. The Apostle Paul then begins to do something that is quite peculiar, but but as normative for a lawyer, a, a person who can think rationally. And remember, he was a Pharisee. So Pharisees were your theological lawyers in that day. Their job was to make sure that Torah was properly interpreted so that God's prophets could stand as God's lawyers to God's people and the world and let the world know where they are in error. And we learned last week how that the Apostle Paul warning the Jews in opaque language, you who take pleasure and those that do the same thing, do you think you're going to escape just because you have the law? Just because you know the law? Do you think you're going to escape just because you can sit in a judicial position and exercise jurisdiction and jurisprudence over people? To have the law and know the law is not equivalent to doing the law. Remarkable this man is, because you see in general what you will find with people who are trapped by political positions is that they will always defend their own team. This is why you want to rise above politics. They always want to defend our own team. Our black folk pretend to defend our black folk like we're all good. Come on now. And our white brethren are going to do the same thing. And everybody in between think it's the most appropriate thing is to protect your race. The problem is God made all of them. And the reality is he knows better than you. And his indictment was that all have sinned. Right. And when that is the case, when the plumb line is laid down and the true judge has established the verdict. Who are you and I to argue with him? And yet there are people who are clothed in robes thinking that they can learn the law. They can have the law. They can adjudicate the law, but violate it themselves. That's why Fannie Willis is in so much trouble now. We told you this last week. Don't try to climb into a position of authority where God hasn't called you. Didn't you hear the greatest judge on planet Earth saying, judge not lest you be judged? Didn't you hear him? The one who alone has the qualifications to judge said, you got to be careful about your measurement. So if you're going to be measuring people first, measure yourself because it's going to always come back to get you. Justice is a boomerang. It's taking everybody out. And so it's important for you and I to understand that what's happening here is a phenomenal event in terms of the positions of parties of interest right now. The positions of party at interest right now is God. The second party of interest now is the Apostle Paul. The third parties of interest are the Jews to whom he is now directly speaking. He said nothing about the Jews in chapter one. He said nothing about the Jews in the first part of chapter two. And then he hinted at the Jews when he says, whether it be Jew or Gentile. And what did he do immediately? He put Jew and Gentile on the same plane immediately. The moment moment he audibilized their names. Now we know that the trajectory of the apostle Paul was to the Jew. Now, this is fascinating. Why? Because Paul himself is a Jew. It's fascinating. Why? Because now Paul is about to do what we all should do if we call ourselves Christians, be our brother's keeper. 
This is why the hood goes into utter disarray. This is why our ghettos, and I grew up in them, went into utter disarray. Because frequently, rather than the whole community pursuing righteousness, we disintegrate into lawlessness as we cover up our crimes and protect ourselves, thinking that somehow seeds of righteousness are going to spring up and deliver the community when what we're doing, when we're, when we're, what we're doing is sowing bad seed. So whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And so what you got with the Apostle Paul is him doing something that I consider the highest valor. He's holding his own community to account. You guys got that? He's holding his own community to account. And no greater principle than that can be understood as God had hunted down Cain. He said, Cain, where's your brother at? Holding him account. And God could really put that to you and me. Where's your brother at? Holding us account. Am I making some sense? So we're going to really walk through something of the nature of, of three points. And I want to drill down into them to show you what I consider a remarkable, remarkable labor of love and work of faith on the part of a man who loved people enough to tell them the truth, even though it hurt. Remember what the uh, proverb says? Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And this is what Paul is doing here, proving himself to, and I had to share this with you last week, didn't I? I reminded you that Paul loved his brethren enough, according to Romans chapter 9, to want to be accursed from Christ for them. This, you have to put these kind of caveats out in the air because way too many people fall prey to propaganda. And they're under the false assumption that love means to just let people do whatever they want to do. See, and this is where the church is corrupted and it's falling apart, too, because its love is lawless. This is why you can take the attributions and characteristics of Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 24 and go, ah, it's in the church, too. The church looks just like a corrupt, perverse, twisted, obtuse society. Am I making some sense? Now, I'm not done in this kind of objective exhortation until you quiet down and start examining yourself. Because we can go amen and it can curse us. So point number one is the reputation of the teacher. The reputation of the teacher. This is not hard to understand. What Paul is doing in Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17 through 20, is a direct conversation with his own colleagues. Is not Paul a Pharisee? Is he not a teacher? Is he not from the highest schools of education? Gamaliel was his, his, his professor, okay? He was of the school of the Shemai. He wasn't of the liberal school of the Hillels. He was of the most strict of the Pharisees. So he's speaking to his own colleagues. In a real sense, he is the head teacher talking to all the subordinates, quite frankly, And so he has a right to raise these Socratic questions that you and I are about to drill down into, okay? Socratic, meaning investigating why a thing is and then holding it accountable. Here's what he says under point number one, the reputation of a teacher, verse 17 through 20. Behold, look, everybody, you are calling yourselves a Jew. There it is, flat out. That was the reputation. That's the reputation presently, isn't it? The reputation is, I'm a Jew, right? 
I'm a Jew. That's what was going on there. It's important for you to see that optic. It's important for us all to see it because that is what was going on. And Paul understood that you are calling yourself a Jew. And now he's going to ask the question, but do you understand what that means? You can tell everybody you're a Christian. I told you folks at Grace, and I know some of you get mad at me. Don't tell people you're a Christian. Stop it. Because if they actually get behind what you say and look at what you do, they might question it. That's what Paul is doing here. Oh, by the way, we're about to learn, are we not? It doesn't matter what you say. I mean, I can end the message right there because this is what Paul is about to wrap up. My Jewish brethren, it does not matter what you say. And yet the whole of the world is built upon the framework of what people are saying, is it not? The totality of persuasion, of grounding, of formulating, of creating and constructing societies is predicated upon what people say. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. The 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 propaganda, the proposition of people's assertion that we are afraid to get behind their assertion and look at what they do to see whether or not the assertion is credible. If we open that door and go in and find out there's something else going on, we might be guilty of being judges. That'll come home in a moment. And so what we're all trapped by is white coats and the stethoscopes and PhDs and doctorates, etc. Now, he's got the paper up there. Leave him alone. He's got to be telling you the truth. He's lying between his teeth. You know, it's the whole thing of a trusty expert. Sorry. The experts are way wrong, way too many times throughout all of history up to this moment. So it's ahistorical to merely trust the experts. You know, your God never told you, child of God, to trust the experts. He never told you to merely listen to what he said. Even he, being the expert, said, try me and test me, right? So when you and, I, you and I are operating out of a truth paradigm, the goal is for us to go, am I living in consistency with that truth paradigm? Because people get to test me. Am I making some sense? So that's what Paul is laying out under point one, number one. Behold, you call yourself a Jew. You want everybody to know it. You got your badge and you are resting in the law. This is the idea is that your confidence is in it. Now, we know by faith that you should not be resting in the law because the law is going to betray you one day. It's going to stand up there with God and say, yeah, Lord, I was hanging out with him or her and everything about them was sinful. You hanging out with the wrong person. You're resting in the wrong person. I'm just being a little evangelical there, right? But we go on. They rest in the law and they make their boast of what? Right. That is a very precarious place for you and I to be. To put a badge on I'm a Jew or a Christian and then you are resting in the code rather than the one to whom the code points. And then you're making your boast of God. This here is the quintessential sort of description of your legalist, of your self-righteous legalist. You guys see that, right? Notice what it says in verse 18. This is Paul laying out what they were. And you know the will of God. You know his will. And, are, and you approve of the things that are more excellent. In other words, you find a very accomplished Bible Christian and they will tell you everything about what the Bible says. And they will have this kind of vocal and again, rhetorical affirmation. Oh yeah, the Bible's right. The Bible's right. Bible's right. Once they stop talking, Watch their walking. 
Because the man that is blessed, the woman that is blessed is not the woman that's talking. It's the woman that's walking. It's the man that's walking. Blessed is the man that walks, not in the counsel of the ungodly. Am I making some sense? Right. So the, the apostle is laying out the concept of the reputation of the teacher under two sub points that I want us to capture here. Grounded in divine revelation. And then grace to lead the blind and babes. Now, these qualifications that he's laying out, go, go back with me if you don't mind, uh, back to verse, uh, verse 18. These qualifications that he's laying out are right qualifications, ladies and gentlemen. You and I should know what we say we are reputed to be. We should know. It's not that we, it's wrong to know. We should know. We should be excellent in understanding, understanding Torah or the Tanakh or the totality of the revelation of God, both old and new. We should if we're going to speak for God. So we shouldn't be ignorant. We shouldn't be naive. We shouldn't be averse to being excellent in the things of God. Do you agree with that? It's just that it's not enough. And that's what Paul is arguing. Listen to it. Verse uh, verse uh, 19, being instructed out of the law, he goes on to say in verse 19, these words, and you are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light of them that walk in darkness. I love what Paul is doing. I don't have time. Paul is using the breath of the uh, Old Testament uh, uh, experience of the Jews, particularly the teachers coming up out of the diaspora under uh, the Babylonian kingdom. And they are wrapped up in a history of Maccabean struggle. They're wrapped up in a history of, um, of interpreting scripture from a Septuagint standpoint, a cultural standpoint. And Paul knows, as Jesus said in Matthew 15, you teach for commandments the doctrines of men and not the doctrines of God. This was the misnomer going on throughout the whole of Christ's ministry. The reason why the Jews missed Jesus then is because they spent way too much time in external sources and commentaries around Torah rather than listening to what Torah says itself. Am I making sense? And this is dangerous in the Christian church as well, because there are all kinds of persons who take on positions of authority to control the scriptures and keep you from seeing what the scriptures want you to see. That has been your religious experience. You go to a church and it traps you by a systems of doctrine that may or may not correspond with the Bible. And it certainly does not sum up in a coherent way what really the revelation of Scripture is all about, which is a person. And thus we got denominations all over the place because people have erred to the left and the right and behind and in front because they have failed to land on him who is the key to the Scriptures. And this is where our Jewish brothers are. Now, Paul knows this. Again, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, because right now for a moment, only for a minute, are you free? You and I are sitting on the uh, sideline. We may be in the courtroom and we're watching God's choice lawyer defend why Christ died. And he's defending why Christ died over against the Judaizers who played a major role in his death. And you can never get away from that. And so here the man who consented to the death of the first martyr of the New Testament church is now standing before God. And he's ready to say he's guilty of having done the same thing. Now, that's a person that's ready to come correct you. He loves you enough to admit that he did worse than you did. And he's trying to stop you from doing the same thing. You're confident that you are yourself a guide to the blind. 
a light of them which walk in darkness. Just powerful language here, powerful language under point number one. Israel was supposed to be a prophetic priesthood to the world. Didn't I tell you that? Malachi chapter three, verses five through seven. This is the last book, Malach, key. Malachi is the last book. This is the Lord's messenger. And he's again reproving Israel in the same way Paul is here now. Can you imagine that? The last book of the Old Testament is a book where the prophet is reproving the people of God for despising God. And he's getting at the rulers. Now, notice what it says in these verses. I want you to capture this. Malachi 3, 5. I will come near to you in judgment and I will be swift against the sorcerers and against the uh, adulterers and against false swears and against those that oppress the hireling of their wages and the fatherless and those that, are, that turn aside the strangers from his right and do not what? Fear me, saith the Lord. Look at that verse and go, Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he came. He corrected all that, did he not? Can you not read Matthew 23 and hear Jesus laying out the argument, hear what they say, don't do what they do. They sit in Moses' seat. They tell you, they bind heavy burdens upon you, too grievous to be born, but they won't bear one of them themselves. And they go around like white wall sepulchers. They are graves over which men walk and it cannot be seen. They are wolves that devour widows' houses. Can you not hear it? Jesus is admonishing them for this kind of uh, idolatrous and covetous behavior, which is prominent everywhere in our world today, is it not? This is so contemporary. And Jesus was, John and Jesus were the only two prophets in that first century correcting all these folks. Look at verse six. Notice what verse six says. For I am the Lord and I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are what? Not consumed. Verse seven, verse seven. Every what for even from the days of your father, are you going away from my ordinances and have not kept them? Return unto me and I will return unto you, said the Lord of hosts. But you have said, wherein shall we return? These these people are just uh, they are amiss as to why the prophet would say you've gone astray. They don't even notice that they have gone astray, saints. Look over at chapter two, Malachi chapter two. It will lay out something of the same concept in chapter two, verse five. The the apostle, uh, the the prophet wants us to capture this concept as well. Look at what he says in chapter five, chapter two, verse five. My covenant was with him of life and peace. Who is he talking about? Levi, Levi. The Levites were to serve as God's medium between Israel and God and between anyone who wanted to come to God. The Levites held the right of being the mediating system, both in terms of worship and in terms of teaching. Teaching priests is what God has always called us to be. Teaching priests. Notice what it says. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him, the covenants, for fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. That is, he reverenced God. Did that make some sense? Now, we know that Levi here is really the great grandfather of Phineas, the one that thrust through that whore and that prince in the day when Israel engaged in Baal Peor. And nobody wanted to clean up that idolatry but one man, Phineas. And that's why God rejected the priesthood and put it in Phineas' hand because, are y'all ready? Circumcision is not in the flesh, it's in the heart. 
Now, if, if, I, if I were drilling down in this, I'm going to leave it alone, but if I were drilling down into the makeup of the genealogical peculiarity of Phineas, you would be amazed, okay? Because he comes from different roots. And it's just like that when God often will take a person who doesn't fit the image and the bill and raise him up to be a leader when everybody is looking to the left. So I'll leave that alone for now, but if you do your own study, you'll catch up with that brother, okay? Verse six, notice what it says. The law of truth was where? In his mouth. And iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and in equity, and he did do what? Turn many away from iniquity. That's what we should be as a teaching priesthood. We should be walking with God and turning many away from iniquity. It's not enough to talk about God. You got to walk with him. And when you walk with him in a vital way, he can use you to give men and women real hope that there is a God. Am I making some sense? This is what he's saying here. So beautiful. Look at verse seven. We'll keep moving. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. The Christian's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. People should come to you and say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Notice what it says. For he is the messenger of the Lord. I love this. This is a play on Malachi. It's a play on Malachi. It's a play on the fact that every one of us should be a Malachi. The Lord's messenger. This is the whole argument. So what am I doing under point number one? I'm agreeing with Paul that these standards that Paul lays out in front of his Jewish brethren, they should be the commendable qualities that affirm the fact that when we call ourselves a Jew or call ourselves a Christian, these things should accompany us. Would they, would that not be true? All right. So under sub point, uh, under point number one, grounded in divine revelation. Sub point B, graced to lead the blind to babes. I want you to capture this. Go back again to to that verse in Romans chapter one, uh, Romans chapter two. Go back to the verse. It's going to be in verse 18. I'm almost sure. Listen to what he says here, because I want you to capture this for a moment. I I so appreciate what Paul is doing. Here's what he says in verse 19. I'm sorry. You are confident that you yourself are a guide of the what? and a light to them that walk in darkness. And the blind is simply a metaphor for men and women who are either uh, ignorant of truth or uh, ignorant of truth because they're not saved and they have been born again. We'll talk that through, but also are ignorant of truth because they're babes in Christ. So the babe analogy and the blind analogy are corresponding analogies. Did you get that? Like when you, when you know people that are young and naive and non-discerning, you can see that they're blinded from a lack of maturity. They just don't know. And the upline are supposed to be men and women who have had their blinders removed from education, exploration, experience, and resolution of what's right or wrong. The downline should be confident to go to the upline for help. The world is lost when the upline is just as blind as the downline. And that's what my master said in Matthew 15. If the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall into the ditch. Then the disciples ran up to Jesus and Master, don't you know that all those Pharisees were sitting in? They got mad at you when you said that. Jesus said, I'm sorry. No, he didn't. He says, every tree that my father did not plant will be rooted up. So you can pretend to be a planted tree, but if he didn't plant you, you'll be rooted up by respect of persons, by hook and crook, by a form of godliness, denying the truth thereof. Y'all keeping up with me? He made it very clear. Let the blind lead the blind. 
He said, let them alone. That's what he told his disciples. Because see what his disciples wanted to do, and I'll tell you to watch out for this. Disciples were ready to start a war with the Pharisees. See, that's what men love to do. Men love to fight when they're too lazy to study. Men love to fight doctrinally when they're too lazy to study because proper study is going to put you on your knees. You're going to find yourself praying for yourself more time than anybody else. That's why you don't want to study. This is why a lot of men like to get caught up in what I call warmongering religion. Pastor, don't go there. Warmongering religion is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. That's why the Pharisees were such a warmongering group. The Maccabees were a warmongering group. And Christianity became a warmongering group. It was an excuse not to be sanctified yourself. Am I making some sense? Yes. And so this is how they ended up killing Jesus. Because Jesus did not sign up for the school of Hillel or Shema or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Libertines or the system of um, uh, uh, aristocracy under the priesthood. He didn't sign up for any of that. Him and John the Baptist were two dudes that made it plain that we have actually started our own party. Thank you. That'll come home in a minute. That'll come home in a minute. They didn't join the left or the right. They started their own party. They were called independents. <laughs> in Jesus' name. Now, the point here is that if you and I are occupying the position of being a Jew, being a Christian, we should be able to help blind people. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24 through 26. I want you to hear it and then I'm going to move on. I am affirming how that Paul Socratically is laying out the legitimate approvable qualities of the Pharisees. In fact, you can read it for yourself in Philippians chapter three. He did the same thing. He says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was literally circumcised on the eighth day. Right. And, and I'm excellent in the law. And according to uh, Torah, I'm blameless. In other words, he had a resume that clearly indicated that he was sincere about his religion. He said, I'll put my religion over against any of you Jews. Right. You and I as Gentiles, we stand back and go, thank you, Paul. Because he's giving us an example as to how we should be. You understand? It's extremely important that he's teaching us how much energy, how much labor, how much vigor he's pouring into caring for his own community. Here it is. And the servant of the Lord must not what? Right. When you find men or women that love to debate, love to argue, understand they're operating out of an excuse. When they love to debate, love to argue, please understand they're operating out of excuse. I taught you guys this many years ago. You can tell I'm getting old whenever I do that, right? I told you, if you don't pray, you're going to fight. If you don't pray, you're going to fight. That's what you do as an excuse for praying. Because see, look, if you know you jacked up in your head, you mad, you angry, you twisted, you're not talking to God because he's going to tell you, look, take a look in the mirror. So you ain't going to go to God. You're going to just keep getting angry and you're going to find victims. Am I making sense? Right. And so Paul said, if you're going to be someone that is going to care about people in terms of their soul, in terms of their psyche, their understanding, don't don't be trapped by anger. Don't be trapped by a kind of vitriol that really is an excuse for not taking care of your own issues. Right. You can't help anybody when you're trapped yourself. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, capable of teaching. And then what? It is three qualities, gentle, 
competent teachers and patient. When you have those qualities, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go into my pastoral mode here, but I'll give it to a few of you. This triad is beautiful in this sense. When you have the quality of being gentle to all men, that means you have a sense of equilibrium in terms of what really the true state and condition of men are. Am I making some sense? Gentle here does not mean soft, compliant. It does not mean approving of evil. It simply means that you are conscious of the real issues of humanity and broadly, they are the same, are they not? It does not matter what your ethnicity is. It does not matter what your socioeconomic status is. It does not matter what your policies are, male or female. Generally, all of our fundamental problems are rooted in sin, are they not? And we know that until we actually deal with the sin issue, we're not fixing anything. So you and I can be gentle with people who are way over into the spectrum of absolute twilight zone weird. Because we got them now, and it's getting ready to get bad. Over the next couple years, it's getting ready to get twilight zone weird. And you have to know how to penetrate through the phenotypical expression of all. That's why they gave you Star Trek and all those. Those movies will let you know about what's coming. You have to be able to actually interpret all of those goons as being stereotypical of certain attitudes and ideas. Am I making some sense? They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, lost in space, journeying to other universes. That's where we're going psychologically. That's where we're going in the whole transhumanism, the whole uh, transformation of society is a journey into space because we're unhinged from God. And this is what's been so difficult about the politics in Washington around the term aliens. Okay, aliens. There's a number of layers to be understood in that nomenclature. There's a number of layers because our present world wants to abandon the biblical worldview and wants to explore being something other than organic human beings. And the role of the teacher here in this in our context is to be able to bring people back, bring them back from the brink of destruction, bring them back from reprobation. Bring them back from distorted worldviews. Bring them back from the hellish darkness that will lead them into a path of distortion, into a path of, of abysmal darkness. Bring them back. That's the goal, to bring them back. And that's why he says you have to be gentle, capable of teaching. And then what? Right. Not right. We talked about that in our Pilgrim's Progress. In patience, you possess your soul. When you meet a man or woman that's capable of being patient, Guess what? Their self-interest is checked. When you meet a man or woman that's capable of being patient, their self-interest is checked. Say, Pastor, expound. There you go. Some people, they, see, they want it. Right? When you can control your emotional makeup, then you can be patient. Because it's not about you. Like when it's about you, your emotional makeup will go off the chart. Now, because your emotions are so invested in that thing, it's about your will, not God's will. It's about you being right, not God being right. It's about things getting fixed now because you on the throne. Right. So the servant of the Lord is willing to be as patient as God is patient with them. That's the rule you got to work with. Whenever you get ready to do counsel, go, go pull out the rule that God gives you of how he deals with you. When you find out how long that rule is. 
Bring that same rule to the conversation with the person you're dealing with and give them the same measure that God gives you. That way you'll change your tone and that way God can actually get into the mechanisms that you're employing to help them. And then they'll go, oh, okay, I can see these people actually care. They care about me enough to not get in the way themselves. That's what it means to be a teacher. This is what Paul is doing. Do you hear me? This is what Paul is doing. He's gradually opening up the dialogue at the profoundly theotherapeutic level. A theological foundation, but profoundly therapeutic, because I can tell you now, if you actually understand implications of statements, what Paul is about to do is put a great dagger into the heart of his Jewish brethren. Listen to it. And I don't mean for you to see it that way, but understand truth penetrates when you can't get out of the way. Truth will penetrate. That's the nature of truth. So listen to what he says in verse 25. Notice what he says. This is going to be answering some people's questions that were given to me in our uh, Pilgrim's Progress outline too. In meekness, you instruct those that are doing what? Do you see it? So in meekness, what does that mean? Self-control. You must demonstrate self-control if you're going to instruct those that are opposing themselves. Now, here's the presupposition or the premise upon which this is a noble duty. You recognize when people are going the wrong way, one, and then you recognize that they are relentlessly going the wrong way, two, and you recognize that those two factors means that they are opposing themselves. You are really then in a rescue mode, are you not? It's not just that you disagree with them. It's that they continue a cycle of self destruction and uh, self-disintegration and self-deception, you want to help them with that. But you got to understand they're going to fight you. If they're going to oppose themselves, they're certainly going to oppose you. Y'all got that? Right. So you got to know if you get into that octagon with them, you got to love them enough to be able to parry and move and be patient enough to catch them in the right place at the right time in the right way for them to sense that you care. Because the goal has to be about release. They have to be released from their ignorances. Notice what the text says if you don't get it. That oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them what? That clause, will give them what? Repentance is from God. This is what I'm saying about when you are in counseling mode with somebody and that individual is operating out of a hard heart, a darkened house heart, an impenitent heart. We're about to see that. And you're seeing all of those kind of characters emerging as they defend themselves. You have to know this is not about you. And while you're talking to them, if you have a nuthetic method of communicating biblical truth to them, you got to say, Lord, I need you to show up. I need you to show up now, Lord, because I am not able to unlock all of these bolts on this person's door. It's not in me. It's in you. I'll be there as your hand. I'll be there as your mouthpiece. I'll be there as the one opening the door. But Lord, you got to unlock it because men and women don't repent apart from the grace of God. They don't. They don't repent. You didn't. I am not going to, I can tell you, you know what makes me happy about repentance? Is God granted me repentance 44 years ago. Right? I mean, and you can tell when he grants it to you because the repentance that God grants 
If you reject it propositionally or mentally, the only option you have after that is to go to hell. Right? That's a, it becomes a great, great proposition when God says, now you can walk out of here or you can go to hell. Which one, which one you want to do? Which one you want to do? And they're like, man, this is logical. I'm out of here. And God graces you to see the choice. Now, I'm not going to stay here and preach and witness to you, but I've used it again and again, as every child of God must do. You must be able to know the fruit that you are selling. Has God delivered you that way? Was he patient with you? Did he get a hold of you and bring you out carefully and convincingly through the gospel and through people that cared about you and prayed for you? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Listen to what he says to the acknowledging of the truth. That's what Paul is trying to get at, is he not? Is that what Paul wants? Point number two, let's keep going. Point number, nope, I need to do one more thing. I want you to see that this was Paul's specific call by Christ. Acts chapter 25, verse 16 through 18. Listen to it. It's in your outline. This was Paul's specific call, and it's yours by application, yours and mine. Here's what God is calling us to do in this dark world if we're going to be a kingdom of priests and prophets. Here's what God, here's what Christ said to Paul. Chapter 26, starting at verse 16, Acts 26, 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen and of those things in which I will what? Appear unto you. In other words, Christ promised Paul that he would show up personally again and again and again to bring clarity to Paul's mission. What a great assistance to Paul. But now listen to what he says in verse 17. Delivering you from the people, that is uh, from the uh, people, that is the Jews, and from the Gentiles unto whom now I what? Right, because he had already went to the Jews. The Jews wanted to kill him. He appealed to Caesar. Now he's headed to Rome. And Jesus says, I'm going to keep you in all of this because I'm going to show up right on time to give you a revelation of why you are there and what you are going through. And you can know that no man will harm you until your job is done. What a great comfort from God to his people, because sometimes your assignment is a difficult assignment. Listen to it. To whom I will send you. Verse 18. Listen to these words. To do what? To open their. So I want to slow that down just a half. Paul, I'm sending you to people to open their eyes. Do you see it? Do you see it? So think how, how important that work is. Paul, I'm sending you to blind people, to a blind nation, walking in the obscurity of ignorance and willful rejection of me. I'm sending you. In order for you to open their eyes. Now, for those of us at Grace, we've been around for a long time. We understand the difference between what we call essential means and instrumental means. No human being can open another human being's eyes. Only God opens the eyes of the blind. The ears of the deaf. The mouth of the dumb. Only God does that. But he does it through us. Am I making some sense? So your job is to be a vehicle by which men and women have epiphanies. They have revelations. They have a st- 
astounding and abrupt insight. They have their, the scales fall off their eyes. They have major paradigm shifts, which opens doors into which they go. And now they have new venues of clarity on what's going on. And you can know that they have it because they'll thank you as if you're an angel from God and you know better than that. But what a joy when they come back and say, thank you, thank you for being such a means in God's hand to help me see how I was opposing myself. Am I making some sense? It's important for you to get this because I see what Paul is doing to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God in order that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in who? Jesus, because Jesus is the one talking. Y'all got that? Powerful, isn't it? Teaching is an, it's an amazing gift to be a teacher, to be a communicator, to be an advisor, to be a counselor when you are walking in obedience to God. All right, point number two, I need to keep going. But here comes the reprimand to the teacher. I'm going to see if I can walk through this a little more quickly, but it's so important to get Romans chapter two. We're going to start at verse 21 through 23 because now Paul is shifting gears. This is going to be a bit more painful because he's moved from the legitimate objective criterion for being a good teacher. And he's about to get on them for failing to do so. Verse 21. You, therefore, which teach another, do you teach yourself? You that preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? This is why I use Fanny, Fanny Willis for an example to you, because if you are watching, she made the mistake of becoming the most famous person on the planet to try to knock down a, a past president for the same stuff she's doing. Right. And, and, and this is something that's simply an optic for you to watch out for. Are you hearing me, child of God? You and I have to watch out for that. You and I have to watch out for thinking that we are removed away from culpability in our own walk at a level in which we may think we have the right to judge others and not even be aware that we're sitting on a powder keg of inconsistencies and rebellion and disobedience from God and the arrogance and assumption that just because you wear a robe and have a gavel that nobody can lift your skirt and find out what you're doing, which is where we are in the world. But Jesus said it. Whatever man does in the dark, it'll come to the light. What you speak in the closet will be made known above board. Everybody got to realize there's a day when Jesus is going to expose all secrets. Theirs, yours, and mine. All secrets are coming out. They're all coming out. <laughs> Look, I need to just tell you. When the, when, the, when the captain of the ship, when the master of the universe sends you a letter saying, there's a day coming that we're going to clean your whole house out. You better thank God. The only thing you need to ask him is what day is that? Because I need some time. What day is that you coming to clean house? Because I, I need some time. And I'm going to take the time between now and then to work on being honest with God. Work on corresponding with God. Work on lining up with God. I'm going to clean out the garage. I'm going to clean out the backyard. I'm going to clean out the attic. I'm going to remove some of those CDs. I'm going to clear out some of the stuff on my phone. I'm going to get rid of all of that stuff that really, if God called my number today, if he pulled my ticket today, I would be grossly embarrassed. 
Am I making some sense? A lot of people just hope that, you know, the, the day of revelation of the wrath and judgment of God is like 50 years down the line. Just give me a week before you do it, Lord, and then I'll clean up. Between then and there, you're still living in rebellion. But God could pull our tag any day. He could pull your tag. He could pull mine. You that steal, you that tell people don't steal, are you stealing? Verse 22. Let's keep going. Verse 22. Notice what he says. You that say to a man you should not commit adultery, are you committing adultery? You that say... Uh, abhor idols. Are you committing sacrilege? I love the way Paul is laying out these items because this is the strict Ten Commandments you got going on here. This is the strict Ten Commandments. You got it at the horizontal level of stealing and adultery, but then you got it at the vertical level of idolatry against God. Y'all got that? Paul is talking to his Jewish brethren about violating the Decalogue. It's so clear, isn't it? Verse 23. Listen to this. You that make your boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonor is God. You see it? Now he is given his conclusion there. If you're one that's saying and not doing, if you're one that's calling other people out but are not walking in it, you are not keeping God's law. You are violating God's law. Now here's what he's about to teach you here. That kind of hypocrisy uh, perpetuated as a practice and a front as a form of godliness actually is going to make people hate God. This is what he's getting ready to teach you. Are you ready? What he's about to teach is when you take a position of authority, when you take a position of rule, when you take a position that you are actually right with God, but you are not. And then in addition to that position, you indict others and you condemn others and you bring judgment on others. When they discover that you were a rank hypocrite, not only will they not like you, they will not like God. Do you hear it? Right. Right. This is how important rightly representing God is. Listen to what he says. You that do this, breaking the law, you are dishonoring God. This here's, now what we're going to look at verse 24 is what is called an exegetical explanation. Because we've had the solution. Do wrong and you're going to dishonor God. It gets even worse than this. Here's what is called an exegetical. Verse 24. For the name of God is what? Blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. See it? For the name of the Gentiles, for the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, Yeshua, all of the attributions of God that are both in terms of what we call uh, 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 nominatives as well as reputation names, titles, attributes, and they are infinite in their, their fundamental expressions. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, particularly Jehovah, as it is written. And so Paul is quoting verse 25. Look at verse 25. First, okay, go back to verse 24. Because in verse 24, when Paul says, as it is written, and I'm just going to set on that for a moment, Paul is always quoting Torah when he teaches, is he not? As it is written. And I can tell you he's, he's here quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Look at it, Malachi 3, 8 and 9. Here's what he says. In Malachi, I'm sorry, sorry, I, I could go there, but um, I will. Malachi 3, 8 and 9, listen to it. Will a man rob God? 
Yet you have robbed me, but you say, where and have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? This, this is a deep story. And you know the uh, African-American church has messed that up. You know that, right? The, 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 the white robe preachers have hung that curse over you and just turned you upside down and emptied your pockets out forever. You, you guys already know that, right? That's a misinterpretation of the text. We'll, we'll deal with that another day. But, 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 you know, you come in, there's a elevator lift that takes you up from the hips and turns you and shakes out all the money, turns you back upside down. You get about 20 minutes of singing, five minutes of preaching, no gospel. And then you're out the door. No wonder you hate God. No wonder you hate God. No wonder you hate God. This is why you see so many people taking their time getting out the car because they're taking their money out and leaving it in the car. No wonder you hate God. I, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even tell you how many times people come to me and they're absolutely just stupefied because we don't talk about money. We don't have five offerings. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. Verse, verse nine, verse nine, verse nine, verse nine. You are cursed with a curse. You've robbed me, even this whole nation. Verse 10. Verse 10, bring up, I better stop. I want to stop because I, I want to stop be, be, because I, I feel I, you're talking about a pastor that's patient and sympathetic with those of y'all who have come out of those toxic environments. That's when you get trapped by the Old Testament and not liberated by the new. That's when you get trapped by the Old Testament, not liberated, liberated by the new. Our master laid this out, the reprimand to the teachers. And I've talked about that. The teacher that does not live it dishonors God. The term means to disgrace. It means to dishonor. It means to despise. And it means to cause to stumble. OK, I'll give you one little insight. Isaiah 915. This will just be a kind of uh, a closure on this part of our investigation with Paul. Here's what God laid out concerning the condition of Israel at that time. And you and I can get it here. Watch this. The ancient and the honorable, he is the what? Now, this was speaking about the leaders and the rulers in Israel, that they should be mature men and women who are walking in a way that's honorable before God. Right? Then you're going to be walking in headship. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head. There is a headship matter that goes on in our relationships. You guys agree with that, right? Which is being destroyed today. Headship is being destroyed today. But look at the next line. And the prophet that teaches lies, what? He's the tail. Israel understood that proverb at that time. And Israel was full of false prophets that were tails. Tails means lies. Manipulating you to cause you to stumble and cause you to fall. The prophet that teaches lies is the tail. Does that make some sense? Point number uh, three, compelled to blaspheme. That's what Paul is teaching here, compelled to blaspheme. And then he's going to expand on this more fully by writing in verse 25 through verse 27, a very probing point. He says, for circumcision, virally profits if you keep the law. Do you see it? But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Does anybody see that? So I want you to catch what Paul is doing here. This here is profoundly penetrating in its implications because circumcision was the way that the Jewish men boasted in being different than the Gentiles. Okay, 
They were boasting in what could be seen. And what's going on here is that they were saying, all you need to believe that I'm a Jew is to see this. Did that come home? Right. All you need to know to believe that I'm a Jew is that I have gone through the physical operation of circumcision. And what Paul is saying is no. Circumcision, properly speaking, is deeper than the excising of the foreskin of the reproductive organ. Now, now it's important for you and I to understand that there was a quasi, um, a quasi importance in the physical circumcision. Genesis 17, 10 is where it started when God told Abraham, look, you need to circumcise the firstborn of every one of your children. And whosoever is not circumcised among your male children shall be what? Cut off. That's what he said. So please understand that's a play in, in, in nomenclature too, because literally to be circumcised literally means to cut off. And you'll hear in the Old Testament the phrasing, whosoever does not obey me shall be cut off. Okay, so that's a play in terms. So when the circumcision was taking place in the physical dimension, what was being said to Abraham about his seed, his children, even those that were not physically his seed, because he had slaves. They had to be circumcised, which is why we're getting ready to get into the argument with Paul. That true circumcision can never be understood as being merely genealogically tied to Abraham. So when the foreskin was cut off, it was a sign of them agreeing with the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and that covenant with Abraham is explicitly laid out in Galatians that there would be a seed coming through Abraham who would be the ground of blessing for everybody in the world. Did that make some sense? And so the idea of having boys, having men children, who would have children, and the uh, men being circumcised was a perpetuation of a promise between God and Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic promise. Y'all keeping up with me? But it was a promise fundamentally about a seed singular, not a seed plural. This is very clear when you read Torah properly. And this is why Paul is going to make it clear in our outline, a very unusual argument here when he says here in uh, chapter two, verse 26 and seven, these words, listen to this. Therefore, if uncircumcision, if the uncircumcision, sorry, I want to go back to verse 25. For circumcision profits you if you keep the law, but if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision puts you in the same status as the Gentile. Woo. So just ride with me for a few more minutes. Give me just a little bit more. Please, it's important for you to get this. That's absolutely a remarkable insight. Because what Paul is saying, if we use an analogy, if you circumcise the foreskin of your flesh and you go about breaking God's law as if you don't know him and don't love him and don't fear him and don't walk, walk with him, one day you're going to wake up and that flesh is going to be back there again. I'm just using the metaphor to help you get it. And, and, and now you go into the bathroom and folks are going, I thought you was a Jew. I thought you was a Jew. He's talking about something that is absurd, 
but speaks to the reality that you can't get your categories messed up. Because if your category is messed up in terms of thinking that you are a Jew because of physical circumcision, you have missed the whole concept of circumcision. And let me say to you that Paul is saying is you can undo your circumcision status by rejecting Torah at the level of obedience. Did that make some sense? So you are an undo. And can I say something? Paul is not building a new revelation revelation here. God said that several times himself to the Jewish people. I want you to capture this one or two times. This is absolutely an amazing insight in regard to this idea of, uh, of, of, of the Jew being one who can be uncircumcised. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 through 26 says it like this. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 26. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Verse 24, let's walk this through. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me. There you go. This is what God wants you to glory in. That you understand and that you know him. You have a, um, a vital walk with him. And you know that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. There you go. When you love somebody, you delight in what they love, right? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Whoa. Do you see that? So what God just said right there was this. Whether circumcision or uncircumcision, it means nothing. As Paul said in Galatians 6, except to be a new creature. Paul said, except you be born again, your circumcision means nothing. And this is exactly what, uh, what, what, what Ezekiel had laid out in the book of Ezekiel 2. Ezekiel 44, verse 7 through 9. Listen to it. We got a little ways to go in our teaching. I'll let you go. Listen to this. Ezekiel Um, 47. In that day, uh, in that you have, here's God indicting them, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute my house when you offer bread, the fat and the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. Now, see, this is really when you tan up church. Did you tan up church when you do this? Now, see, I'll be here a long time if I make the application of the uncircumcised in the temple with the uncircumcised in the church. Won't we be here a long time? Because uncircumcision means to be operating out of all of the base base and vile things that go on in our present generation as heathen. You see what I'm saying? Listen to what he goes on to say, verse 8. Verse 8, a couple more. Verse 8, and you have not kept the charge of my holy things. But you have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. Verse 9. Verse 9. Thus saith the Lord God, no stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. What is God doing? He's fighting against his own people who are violating God's standards as to who would be qualified to be in the church. Now, if we stopped right here and took this as a syllogism, we would understand that you and I, in order to be known to be properly right with God, would have to be circumcised. Raise your hand if you got what I just said. I know you didn't. 
if you understood this in its application, if circumcision means walking right with God, you and I have to be right with God in order to be part of God's church. Does that make sense? And therefore, it would be logical that if circumcision in its truest sense is not circumcision in the flesh, but circumcision in the heart, then Christians are Jews as well as those who are Jews who believe the gospel. Did that make some sense? This is where Paul is going, by the way. This is where Paul is going. Paul is helping his Jewish brethren understand that your behavior actually made you an un-Jew. Your behavior has destroyed your circumcision and your behavior has expanded the rebellion of the Gentiles. Do you guys remember those crazy Jews in the days of Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12 through 17, when Eli's two boys ran worship. Do y'all remember those crazy boys? Listen to this. This is the whole point here. Listen to it. And this is 1 Samuel 2, 12. Got to keep up with me, sis. 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. This is a bad word in our today's vernacular, okay? They know not the Lord. There you go. Now that's uncircumcision. Is it not? You cannot be a priest in the temple of God and not know God. That's a glaring contradiction. These boys are uncircumcised, are they not? Now watch how they behave in their uncircumcision. Here it is, verse 13. And the priest's custom of the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. This boy, this priest had an instrument that he had made where he could scoop down in the pot that was for the Lord and get as much meat as he wanted for himself. Did y'all get that vision? Look at the next verse, verse 14. And he struck it in the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the flesh hook brought up to the priest, he took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came. Verse 15. I want to show you why Paul says you caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God by your disobedience. Also, before they burnt the fat, which was supposed to be for the Lord. Totally. The fat was supposed to be for the Lord. Totally. The, the, the priests were not supposed to get that. The first fruits were to go to God. Notice what it says. The priest's servants came and said to the men that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest. For he will not have it sodden of thee, but what? Because he wanted the fat on the meat. Soddening separates the fat from the meat. He wanted that which was the Lord's for himself. See, that's called an uncircumcised heart. That's called somebody that doesn't know the Lord, doesn't fear the Lord, doesn't care for the Lord. Look at the outcome. Watch the outcome. Verse 16. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently. What does that mean? Here you are, a sincere worshiper coming to God. Say, please burn the fat. It's for my God. All that I have, God has given to me. He's told me to give a portion back to him. And he wants it this way. Don't take the fat from the Lord's. It's his. Now we could talk about the deeper spiritual essence of it for those of you who are trapped by the notion this old archaic method of giving God meat as if God is a human being he is not he is teaching us grander spiritual things that praise God from whom all blessings flow 
and that we are to give the God the best of the portions that he gives to us and that we get to enjoy the rest. And that's how that economy perpetuates itself. Did that make some sense? It goes even deeper than that. When God is eating that which is offered to him by faith, God delights in it because he sees the essence of that thing as being done in Jesus name, who really is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And God, the father takes delight in the lamb and his fat and its sweetness and its beauty. And then we get to share in that. Does that make some sense? And here we are taking that which belongs to the Lord. We can make application. Notice what he says. And then take as much as you want as your soul desires, the offer says. Then the priest would answer him, no, but you shall give it to me right now. Sound like passion, doesn't it? That'll come home again in a second. And if not, I will take it by force. That's where they're beating you up in churches around if you don't give enough. It's the same thing, penetrating into your conscience, making you guilty, making you feel bad, telling you you're going to be under a curse if you don't give God his tithe. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And that was never everywhere, anywhere in Torah that that should have been the mechanism to, to motivate you to give. Giving must always be motivated out of a revelation of God's glory, goodness, kindness, and blessings in your life. And that's a personal reciprocity act where God shows you how good he is to you and you respond back to God and you do it in private. You don't do it in public. You don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't blow a trumpet and tell people how much money you give. You don't do it. Am I making some sense? Right, here it is. Look at verse 17, verse 17. Verse 17, here it is. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. That's vertical. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Every time they thought about going to church, they hated it. They hated it. Do you see it? Gentiles blaspheme God through you. Let's go back and finish up. Romans chapter 2, verse 27 through 29. We're almost there. A few observations, we're done. Here it is. Notice what Paul says now under what I'm going to call point number three, compelled to blaspheme, and then uh, point number four, contradicting the symbol. Under point number three, what we are recognizing is that when men see the worship of God destroyed or distorted, there is an apathy towards God, is it not? Subpoint so A, an antipathy. Antipathy is a term that means to have a kind of enmity and a kind of uh, hostility towards God. That's where my world is today. That's where my world is today. It's hostile towards God. Hostile towards God. That's the idea. Subpoint so B. And therefore, the people who are distorting the worship are actually becoming instruments of deception. If you and I are not properly honoring God the way he calls us to do, particularly publicly, this is the parlor metaphor. I told you the parlor is the public witness. Didn't I tell you that? Are you guys keeping up with me? The parlor, your living room tells everything in general. You don't let people into the private space. That's between you and God. But there is a public place where people get to come and know you a little bit better. Did that make some sense? That's why Pilgrim's uh, parlor analogy is so important. You and I don't get to hide. We don't live under a rock. We don't live in a cave. You are my witnesses. 
So people have to draw near enough to be able to see something that constitutes who you are. And when they come into your parlor, they get to find out what you love and what you don't love, what you do and what you don't do, what you prioritize and what you don't. Am I making some sense? And we're not talking about your home. This is why Pastor never calls you say, I want to make a house call. That was done many years ago. And many years ago, in what we call hyper-legalistic reform religion, where people would make house calls. These preachers thought that they were helping you be holy by saying we'll be over in 10 minutes. How offensive is that for the preacher to think he has a right to come over your house in 10 minutes? And see, in those days, there wasn't even telephones. So what you had to do was practice a kind of hypocrisy right along with them. Y'all would get the big long sheets out and cover up big sections of the parlor. Come on, baby, we got to tie this up because we, we don't want the preacher to see this, right? And I don't blame you. The preacher's not your God. The preacher's not your God. Your God is your God. And your God saw it before you bought it. And he puts up with it because he knows how to sanctify you. And nobody has that kind of spear over your life. But you should be living in a way where you are glad to have the elders over from time to time and other Christians too. But really, I'm talking about the heart. Because what I'm talking about is if I am publicly consistent in my expression to you as a believer, then I'm not hiding anything from you that is worthy of you seeing. Am I making some sense? You don't get to know everything about me and I you. But there should be enough for my general character to be known publicly and abroad that he is this kind of person. She is that kind of person. They are this kind of person because they walk in the light. Okay? So it's extremely important for these things to come home. Otherwise, you're going to deceive people. And what I love now, notice what he says under subpoint C. Your circumcision is undone when you disobey God. Whoa! Now, can, can I go on to advance Paul's argument? Can I do that? Paul says now over in verse 20, uh, 27, and shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. Y'all got a few more minutes? This is crazy. You know what he's saying now? Here you call yourself a Jew, boasting in knowing Torah, reading Torah, preaching Torah, imposing Torah, you get judged by those who don't have the external code. Neither are they circumcised in the flesh, but they have more integrity than you do. And they get to judge you as if you are uncircumcised and they are circumcised. Whoa! Do y'all see that? See what I mean by Paul being a brilliant hero of logic, around what it means to be coherent in your, your walk with God. Notice what he's doing. He's saying, and shall not uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you who by letter and circumcision doth transgress the law. The answer would be yes. Look at verse 28. I want to walk this through now and close. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, 
Neither is it that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Do you understand how damning these words are coming from the apostle of Christ who himself is a Jew? Do you understand how he is defining Judaism? He is defining Judaism on other grounds than circumcision. This is profound. Follow him through, because I'll close it here in a second. Notice what he says in verse 29. He says in verse 29, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now, capture what he's doing here. This is under point number four. Capture what he's doing. It's clear, sub-point A, circumcision is a sign of separation. It's clear, sub-point B, a sign of suffering and sanctification. We know that because we understand that circumcision actually pointed to somebody else being cut off. Do you know who that is? His name is Jesus, Colossians 2, 11. You must get this theology before you go home. You need to understand that all acts of circumcision from the days of Abraham up to the day when Jesus was circumcised by his mother Mary and Joseph in the temple, where Simeon said, my eyes have beheld the salvation of the Lord. I'm ready to go home now. That boy was circumcised because he would be put to death on the cross. And listen to Pauline theology around circumcision in whom also you and I are circumcised. In who? Christ, with the circumcision made without hands. Meaning who? God did this in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Look at me, saints. When you're a child of the living God, God circumcised not merely the foreskin of your flesh, because to be in Christ, it is neither male nor female. To be in Christ is neither Jew nor bond. To be in Christ is neither slave or free. When a man or a woman is in Christ, they are sons of God. And the circumcision is the heart. It's cutting away the Adamic nature that trapped us in our sin of which you and I could never be extricated unless someone took on our nature as a man, lived perfectly, totally perfectly, and then hung on the cross to bear the work of circumcision in our behalf. And when Jesus died, we died. It's as if we were circumcised in our spirit and the old man lay in the grave with Jesus. And when Jesus rose again, we rose again in newness of life. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a what? He's a what? He's a new creature. And that's exactly what Paul meant when he says, look, circumcision does not profit you. Uncircumcision does not profit you, but to be a new creature. This is revolutionary theology in the first century. There's revolutionary theology. There's revolutionary theology that, that the church captured. I'll close it here. It's revolutionary theology that the church captured in the first century and made it up to about the first millennium and then lost it because the church where it started off in grace ended back up under works because the church wanted to engage in political influence. The church, rather than preaching the gospel, became a political power in Rome to subjugate folks under a colonial agenda. And now the sword they used was political and fleshly rather than the sword of the word of God. Am I making some sense? 
And so they were making Christian nations, but they weren't making true believers. And this is why the church eventually kind of morphed into a neo-Judaistic construct with a pope that corresponds to the high priests and your archbishops, which correspond to the Sanhedrin and a system of religion that was predicated upon works and not upon grace. It was nothing but neo-Judaism. Am I making sense? And until the Reformation came along, when men found the Bible, the word of the living God, the truth that's in Jesus, until that word came along, men and women were trapped. But once men and women found that the Bible was about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, the one true Jew, the one true Jew. Then men and women were ready to be liberated, ready. And, and I'm telling you, Zechariah prophesied about this long ago. Zechariah chapter 8, 23. Look at it. This is the last optic. I'm going to let you go. This here is what we call uh, uh, the age of Messiah, the age of Messiah. Here's what it says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts in those days, the age of Messiah, which has been in existence since Jesus was born. We're not waiting for Messiah to come. Messiah has come and Messiah is on his throne right now. Messiah has sent the Holy Ghost and Messiah resides in the heart of men and women by faith right now. We know Messiah. We know the Jerusalem, which is above. We know the Davidic kingdom rules right now. Yes, we do. He is the ruler of the world because he rose again from the dead and the message of the gospel puts you in the real Zion kingdom. Listen to the language. Notice what it says. In that day, it shall come to pass that 10 men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a what? Saying, we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you. One Jew, who is that Jew? His name is Jesus, to whom the nations come. Ten is the number of completion and fullness, and it represents all the nations of the world. That's you. That's me. That's everyone to whom the Lord has revealed Messiah. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10 to his disciples, once he knew definitively that the Jews were rejecting him, other sheep have I that are not of this fold. Them must I bring in and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Not two folds, not two shepherds, one fold and one shepherd. And we are the circumcision that worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in the flesh. Now y'all know I'm quoting Bible, am I not? And I'm quoting that brother that we have been talking about for an hour and 20 minutes now. I'm quoting that brother who has brought into the New Testament canon a revolutionary interpretation of Judaism, has he not? Is that revolutionary? Now you can see what I said the other week. As our country is going to hell and the nations of the world are removing themselves further and further from God. The religion that is emerging on a political level cannot be New Testament. It's going back to the Old Testament because it's a religion predicated upon war and power and not grace or mercy or an accomplished redemption 
that God is excited about so that to be a true Jew receives not the honor of men, but the honor that comes from God alone. How powerful is that? That's the 29th verse. Y'all do know that, right? Are y'all hearing what I'm hearing? Are y'all hearing what I'm hearing? Here's what I'm saying. It cannot be circumcision in the flesh because that will reap the praise of men. The real circumcision has to be the hidden man of the heart, which God alone sees. See, you and I should really be thankful for the nature of grace. Because what that means is that God can save us anywhere under any circumstance and bring us into the most vital, penetrating, irreversible, irrevocable relationship of union with him at the deepest levels of our nature. And nobody know it but you and God. Nobody know it but you and God. And there's a day coming when he's pulling the curtains back and we're going to find out who true Jews are. Am I making some sense? One day, one day, one day, amen. One day.